0: Today, Jahed and I talked with Jen Horneff, the founder and CEO of Savvy Cooperative. Jen has a truly interesting background, having worked in academia after completing a doctorate in environmental medicine, subsequently working as a consumer representative with the Food and Drug Administration in the USA, and even as a scout for an early-stage venture fund. Dr. Horenhef took her experience as a lifelong autoimmune disease patient and cancer survivor and channeled it into building Savvy, a cooperative owned and governed by its patient members. In this episode, we get into the details of life as an entrepreneur and the challenges of starting and growing a multi-stakeholder digital platform. Hope you enjoy the episode.
1: All right. Thanks for joining us today, Jen. So maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of a background on yourself and then how Savvy came to be because I have privileged knowledge. I think I know how those two are interlinked, but let's explicate for the audience.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to share a little bit more about Savvy. But yes, Savvy came out of like personal experiences. I did not mean to start a company, let alone a cooperative. So that was born out of really personal experience seeing a problem. But to help explain what Savvy does and why we are a cooperative, I'll tell you a little bit of my personal background. So since Savvy works in healthcare, you may wonder why, why did I get into that? Well, first and foremost, I do identify as a patient. I grew up with several chronic autoimmune diseases when I was just an infant and survived a brain tumor as an adult, so I've always been in healthcare in one way or another, but as a professional, I actually went into healthcare as a human factors engineer and a human-centered designer and was an academic working in healthcare, studying things around clinical trials and things like this. I was an FDA advisor, so I had you know some insight into the regulatory bodies as well. And in doing this kind of work, my professional colleagues in industry and academia and regulatory affairs were trying to create better products and services for patients, but they were guessing. And I could tell they were guessing. And I knew that because they were coming to me and finally being like, well, hey, Jen, you're a you're a patient. Will you weigh in on this committee and that project? And at first I was flattered that they would ask me for my opinion. But when they kept coming back to me, it really signaled a diversity problem, that they did not have the perspectives of people from historically excluded communities and people that I just cannot represent. I'm white with a PhD and live in New York City, so I couldn't possibly speak on behalf of communities I wasn't a part of. So I began to say, hey, why don't we go ask some other people? And that was sort of the organic genesis of Savvy, was sort of playing matchmaker, helping people connect with the patients or caregivers from diverse backgrounds to weigh in and give their input. And that's where I saw the the business need. Like this is a business, helping companies connect with patients or caregivers. But having been that patient that had been asked to give their insight for free for so long... It didn't feel right for me to create a business that would exacerbate the power imbalances that patients already face in the healthcare ecosystem, and so you know I was aware of my own privilege that I could participate in you know giving my insights for free because I was a consultant and I could had a flexible schedule to be able to participate, and that's just not the way it is for people, and so I wanted to create something that would value patients for their insights. And if you recall that I just said I got a PhD, I did not get an MBA. I did not know how to run a business or start a business, so I was naive in some ways, in um, many ways still am, but I think it, I kind of had that going for me because as I was trying to figure out how to structure savvy, I, you know, thought that, you know, I would do an LLC to start. It seemed to be like the thing I could figure out. People said weigh it on C Corps. So I was in the middle of working with a lawyer to establish an LLC when I had a conversation with a patient that will always stick out with me. And they had said that they didn't want to work with another company that was kind of working in a similar space because they were trying to use patients to give their insights for free. And when patients started to ask for compensation for helping them build their company the company then was just sort of moving on and finding a new batch of patients that would help them for free. And I did not want to be that company. And I didn't want to just pay them for their insights. I wanted to give them equity into the company they were helping to build. And through some late night Google searches, I learned that we could build a cooperative. And that was the early days of the platform cooperative movement. I know you've already talked with Nathan and other folks in the platform co-op space. So we were one of those early platform co-ops that we established back in 2016. And Savvy Cooperative now is a multi-stakeholder public benefit co-op that allows for patients to become co-owners of our cooperative. How's that?
1: That's good. That's really comprehensive. And honestly, you covered the rest of the interview guide. So we can just wrap it up here. And uh yeah, nice episode. <laughs> just kidding. So uh all right, that's a great intro. And you know, one of the things that I'm not sure if you've covered this in other places, you know, you've done the podcast circuit quite a bit, you're out there now in conferences a lot. One thing that really drove me you know, to like drew me to savvy as well, was that you have a deep background as a qualitative researcher in ergonomics and environmental medicine. And it's almost like, you know, in the polygram sense, you kind of did the things yourself that don't scale until you could figure out a way to scale them. So can you tell us a little bit about your past academic work and how that fed into savvy?
2: Well, that's interesting because yes, I was a researcher, but when starting savvy, the problem that I saw was more just matchmaking and Mm -hmm. thinking that that's what companies and patients needed was to connect directly and did a lot of research as a good founder would to make sure that this need was there. So we built early prototypes, we had conversations, but even so now we try to coach startups to be like, hey, don't just create something and then be like, do you like this? You first (laughs) want to just do some landscape assessments and discovery around, is there a need for this? And is it something that folks would actually use? How would they use it? Who would use it? At what juncture? What are the pain points you're solving for? And then we created those prototypes, which still hold true today around the vision that we're trying to create, you know, admittedly, and you know, we're not at that ultimate vision for what we want to do, but we're working and we're getting there. And by doing user research, that's how you figure out that product market fit. And I think that's what Savvy sort of excelled at early on was finding that product market fit and also finding a way to just run a business. And it's something that I try to tell every founder that I meet is like, figure out how to make money. Like that's how you have your freedom. And so we started doing that with some early consulting work as well, which allowed us more freedom. And I'm sure we'll get to talking about this, but like, yeah, like fundraising as a co-op is hard. So we had to just kind of figure stuff out.
1: Well, I think that's actually a great place to jump into this, right? So you backed into a part of the story I didn't know, which was that patient kind of waking you up to cooperatives, right? That's uh, that's actually really cool. I don't, You may have told me that, or I don't remember. But in any event, now that you did that, right, let's start at that point of the journey. So you Googled cooperatives, you found platform cooperatives, <laughs> however you ended up doing it. What were some of the challenges that you faced putting this together as a cooperative? And then we'll just start there
2: oh everything you know i think that that's one of the things that i used to say still saying that everything we were doing back then was for the first time and it's really tough and so yes i'm slightly jaded from that experience of being sort of a first mover and not having roadmaps to look at yes there had been other people starting platform co-ops before me so you not like we we're the original but There just wasn't, there wasn't recipe to make this work. There were so many unknowns. There was barely like laws that allowed us to do what we wanted to do. That's a fun story. When I did decide to become a cooperative, I had looked up how to do it. And I'm based in New York and to form a cooperative in New York. Now I could forget some of the details, but essentially they wanted you to be five people. I believe you had to be five entities to come together To file for being a cooperative in the state of New York. Well, I didn't have that. (laughs) I had myself that actually incorporated prior to my co-founder coming on. So, how do you become a cooperative as one? And so that just shows that like the original intent was always to be a cooperative, even if we didn't have the membership for it. So that didn't work. And as you probably know now that most cooperatives, like ours, are incorporated and registered in the state of Colorado. And so that was my late night Google search, finding my attorney, Jason Weiner, who is many a co op attorney, and had shot him He's an also email. <laughs> yep. Shot him an email at, I don't know, 11 p.m. one night, got on the phone with him the next day. And within 24 hours, we were filed as a cooperative. The rest is history.
1: Awesome. So then. File as a cooperative, you've got this idea running in your brain around, you know, we're going to make a, a marketplace to match folks with these opportunities and also make sure that they have upside in them, equity in it. Uh, and it's not just a one-time, one-and-done transactional thing. It's a relationship that they can continue to benefit from no matter how many times they contribute to it. So now that you've done that, you've got your co-founder, Ronnie, maybe some other folks on board what did you do next, right? Did you bootstrap this thing from zero? You mentioned consulting, right? Did fundraising enter the question?
2: Ooh, lots and lots of hustle, my friends. I mean, and this, is, this is privilege, right? Like I had the ability to do consulting on the side. I didn't take a paycheck for four years. So, you know, it's this is hard work that I had to support Myself and the company did not take funding. We won several pitch competitions. I forgot that until recently somebody's like, Oh, but you want some money? Yeah, we did. So that was helpful. It wasn't, you know, tons of money, but enough to do our small expenses back in the day. But otherwise, it was self funded by me. We did have co op members that came on and so contributed their share to our co op, but purchasing a share at Savvy was. $25 to begin and then up to $34. So we are not talking massive amounts of capital here. We wanted to make it accessible for anybody that could join or wanted to join the co-op. And so we didn't want finances to be a barrier, but believed in, you know, the co-op principles around economic participation. So wanted to have there be an actual share that people purchased. So that was nominal. But for many years, that's what we did was just hustle, self-fund, started to make a little bit of money and just frankly, again, not paying ourselves. We had brought on a couple of consultants here and there, so we paid them. So that was also a tension that I also always had, was making sure everybody else got paid because we're not a 501c3 nonprofit. This It just didn't feel right to me to not compensate people. So that's, I think, also a lesson learned was, how could we have incorporated people earlier on that wanted to contribute even when we don't have the capital? So I think that is an interesting concept to figure out.
1: Got it. And then at some point, I guess, if I recall, it was in the memory hole that is 2020. Yes. You, I remember seeing you, Maybe I don't remember if you leaked this alpha to me or not, but I remember seeing it in TechCrunch that you were one of the first cooperatives to raise venture funding. So Tell us about that. How did that come to be?
2: Yeah. So that was a wild ride. <laughs> We had a lot of interest from venture capitalists from the beginning. Here's this co-op, this weird thing, but it looks interesting because they're creating essentially network effects by having communities engaged in the company. So, a lot of top-tier VCs approached us. I would kind of shoo them off <laughs> to be like, you don't want in on this, like we're a co-op. But there was a couple and one in particular that was truly interested in what we were doing and where many folks tried to talk us out of being a co-op, the ones that got it, got it and didn't try to talk us out of it, but got hung up with the fact that we're a co-op and want to be able to share the upside with our users. But I think we were getting, we got past that part. The trickier part for them was the governance aspect the fact that they couldn't force an exit when they would be used to doing that if they and other vcs or people thinking like them were on the board so that was a challenge around the traditional venture capital funding pathway because we all had people to report to just like we have our co-op members they have their lps everybody's got to you know watch out for the people they're representing and it just wasn't a fit but there was this little VC experiment, if you will, which was Indie VC, And interestingly enough, Indie VC was one of the very first sort of funds that I was referred to by a smarter friend than myself, who was in the, the venture space And early days. was like, yeah, you should check them out. So they were on my radar, but it was actually one of the, v- the traditional venture capitalists that we had talked to that properly introduced me to Bryce Roberts at NDVC to have a conversation. I was actually a venture scout for NDVC prior to becoming a funded company through them. And so I got to understand more about how they operated, what they were looking for. And they really want companies that are post-revenue, that are actually making money and they had certain thresholds for wanting you to be making X amount per month, because their model is still a, a risk capital equity based model, but where you can repurchase shares out of revenue. So it doesn't look so good if you don't have any revenue. It's hard for them to see a path towards uh, getting their their money back. But what's interesting is not only is it that they don't hold, you know, equity forever. But they also trust their founders to do what's right and for the company. And what that meant for us as a cooperative is they trust the co-op to figure out what's in their best interest. And so that's where it was a real fit. So IndyVC became our first investor. And not only do we have these preferable financing terms, but they actually have zero governance. They have no voting rights. Which is also an interesting story because as a cooperative, we had never contemplated members or folks in the co-op not having voting rights. So we actually had to create a new series of shares that did not have voting rights at all, which required us to have a vote and I'm happy to tell you about that if that's of interest. But I think these are the weird things that come up that we never would have contemplated, which is why I right. said earlier on, everything we did was like for the first time and we were just making it up as we went along. And our lawyer was making sure we weren't breaking any laws. But if it didn't say we couldn't do it, we pressed onward.
1: Nice. You mentioned an interesting point there around when the VC started to get interested, they could clearly see a bit of the promise in community, network effects, and growth and all of that. But the Governance was not really turned them off because they couldn't force an exit. So in the background of all this stuff, probably since about 2019 is when, you know, kind of the other side of our pod focused on the Web3 and DAO folks. All that stuff was taking off, all the various governance innovation and also governance problems, right? It's not all sunshine and roses out there.
2: More people, more problems.
1: Exactly. All that started to happen. And so it's a bit interesting, too, when you see now that, a very, very common pattern that I think Martin has also pointed out in, in our chat with Jason is that these uh, protocols and DAOs are often they're they're forced, you know, by virtue of the regulatory atmosphere they're working in the environment they're working in here that they have to have sufficient decentralization, which means something like fifty-five percent of the company is what people shoot for usually is set aside for the community, right? This uh, this amorphous entity that isn't really defined often, but That now you see VC money just pouring into the space, right? It's like tens of billions, right? It's a ton of money. So I think it'd be interesting to hear from you in those conversations with VC folks, right? User ownership is now becoming like this lot of things. People are like, yes, this is the future of the internet. This is how things should be. And there's all this weird memes and stuff emerging around it. Um, What's your take on all of that?
2: Well, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Let's unpack that. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm tickled in some ways, being like, where are y'all been? Like <laughs> what we were talking about this. It's scary. And but of course, there's different structures, right? A co-op is a very different structure than a DAO. People try to think that they're the exact same thing, but they're not. And so, and web three has a lot of concepts that overlap. There, it's just like a series of Venn diagrams. And so it's choosing. I think people should go after what are they trying to do before they figure out the, the structure. And so it should be function over form as they figure out what this looks like. But from the investment standpoint, look, I don't know. I don't know what like little seed got in people's head that made them all of a sudden want to throw billions of dollars into this space. I think seeing that it is the future. And so you have to figure it out. You have to figure out how to be a part of this. And it's, going to take those people that are willing to experiment with it. And there's a lot of unknowns where this still the very, very early days of DAOs and Web3, but it's exciting to see that people care about user ownership. And now we just got to figure out like what's the right format to do it.
0: Jod, I guess, what? how do you feel about it? I mean, you're currently a VC right now.
1: Oh, I think that you can't have me reveal the whole playbook on the pod bro <laughs> but yes how do i feel about it i mean i wouldn't be this is the one thing that actually tilted me personally into actually trying to do it right because i think ever since indy joined year round and i started to think like oh wait we could make more of these things right for me like jen knows this but just so we we all just get it out there right the reason why I really wanted to try to explore this and i have been wrestling it with it, like for two years speaking to folks like uh, start.coop, which I know you guys went through, right? And Greg and Jessica uh, had been putting together that equitable economy fund at the time. And for me, I'm just very excited by the idea of starting more Savvies because, you know, we haven't really got into the specifics of the success of what you guys are doing. And of course, you can you know feel free to disclose as much as you want or as little as you want. And later on, we talk about it, but... You know, it's at this point, and it was a long, hard fought road, but it's a pretty successful business and built on the back of the people who are building the business, right? And their contributions and multi stakeholders, right? Not just patients, but a whole bunch of people behind the scenes who are stitching it all together, making sure it works and delivering value to, you know, an actual business model. So for me, I think that that is just fantastic. (laughs) Broad based wealth distribution based on democratic governance is what I'm all about. And so when I look at stuff like, at least 55% equity tranches set aside, token equity set aside for community. In some places, it looks really great because like you said, Jen, there's an actual thing that people are trying to do with this. It's pretty well defined, or at least it's as defined as it can be. And then a lot of the time, there's just a, you know, what we call hopium right? And uh, amongst this team, where they're just kind of saying like, "Well, this is a cool thing, and we're going to attract a lot of people to it, and the token is going to go up, right?" And so, those two things, I think, as an investor, especially when you're in this space, you're that's maybe the two poles you are fighting against. You're like, is this one of those things, or is this one of those things that can actually make people money and a lot more people money than you know your standard ESOP based program? So to come back around to the question, you know, what do I think about it? I think worker-owned democratic uh, workplaces was basically the entire thing that really pushed me into this to be like, I remember I said this to you, I think Jen, I said, how do we make more Savvy's? <laughs> right? Like savvy's awesome, the savvy is going to continue hopefully to grow. <laughs> but how do we then see it and make more of these a reality, right? Bring more competition from user-owned entities into these places where this is just not a thing. There's a there's a take rate Applied to a platform where the users are not even seeing a cent of it, how do we bring more competition to that? Right. So, as me to answer your question, Martin, that's really that's really it for me. That's what I think.
0: Yeah, I guess when we get entrepreneurs on the pod, and you know, Jod, you and I both been relatively successful entrepreneurs, right? The we all have this thing against VCs, right? And I like it just kind of comes out. And I guess where I want to kind of push a little bit for folks who haven't been entrepreneurs, which there are a lot on the pod, um, that are listening today, just like where the real concern comes and where the real, I guess, misalignment of incentives comes, right? Because theoretically, if VCs have a good if you have a good taxation system, right? And you have a good, I mean, these are all kind of assumptions, right? You've got kind of democracies that are run by good taxation systems. You've got VCs that, are, that have LP bases that are composed of pension funds. Theoretically, VCs should be good allocators of capital that should lead to broad-based wealth distribution because they're allocating a portion of their risk assets versus saying investing in a portion of the wealth of their LPs into risk assets and managing that so that you know the pension funds can have higher returns and meet their obligations in a world where we've seen you know the return on safe assets go down dramatically luckily we're reversing that now as we go into a downturn but i think like the reality is when you get kind of a vc on your board or you get into the situation where you have someone who has not been an entrepreneur before or you have to deal with an analyst who's like 24 years old on your board, right, or as a board observer who really hasn't done anything in their life except kind of maybe do a couple of years' stint, this is where the misalignment kind of comes where you've got to essentially, you have someone who's commoditized you, right? You've decided to take a job where you've fired your boss. Now you've raised money and you effectively have rehired a boss that is probably way less competent than your former boss because they don't actually, act, many times, don't have a lot of operational experience. So I think just kind of hitting on this point of VCs are probably, the best VCs are probably really good allocators of capital. Theoretically, that should have a positive impact on broad-based wealth distribution to the extent that the LPs have, uh, they have a good kind of LP base versus just kind of the types of personalities that you deal with so that people don't think that we we just hate VCs on this pod. It's more kind of, there's really different types of VCs. and. And then you've got this whole situation that John was talking about, where you have kind of this this regulatory regime that makes it really hard to invest into cooperatives, and so you have this kind of this legislative constraint as well.
2: And I think that I'm probably going to derail this conversation, but I'm known for doing that. Do it as you're talking about. Yes, like many venture capitalists have maybe not been operators themselves; they have been entrepreneurs. They don't know how to build a business. I've actually found similar in this sort of space building something weird. There's a lot of people that talk about it, theorize it, look at it academically, but when you get into it, this stuff is freaking hard. And I think that that's also been my message for people in the web three space is it's really hard to actually go and do this stuff and do it effectively. And to say, yeah, let's set aside 55% or whatever you allocate for community or things like this. Well, how are you engaging them? This doesn't happen overnight. People don't just all of a sudden flock to your business, which I also thought, of course, we're building the best thing. Everybody's gonna to want to come do this, but it's hard to do. And and how much are they engaged? And how are you building this together and getting feedback and creating the vision that you have, but having to sell that? And that's one of the hardest things for any entrepreneur. How do you sell what you see that others don't see? And that is one of the constant struggles that. As leaders, you have to figure out that balance of conveying that to the community. Here's what we're trying to build, but you don't quite see it (laughs) and you got to kind of trust. And that's what I know in, I hear the conversations also happening in sort of the DAO space too, that there, where is that sort of level of leadership leading the vision and then other people can contribute at different levels, but then what is the governance structure around incorporating different levels of involvement And it's another thing that gets a little bit tricky with tokens. And how are we even thinking about whose voice matters? And now I'm going to take us into that vortex, but there's so many different elements and layers of this that until you're actually in their building, you have no idea. And so I try to help people by telling them at least what they don't know about. And so that they can at least be slightly more aware going into things.
0: Yeah. And I think, well, I'll say one more thing here before we can try to get back on track, but I think the other thing that's really interesting about entrepreneurs in this space, and I put Jen, you in this category is like building a venture is just super hard and painful and no one should do it unless they have to. Right. And like, there's all sorts of reasons they have to, they might have kind of a, a problem with authority. They might have, you know, been around too many cats as a child, you know, it's, but, but like, this is not something that you should do. I have a whole thing on that. With, uh,
2: How dare you?
1: No no no, no. Bacteria, no, no, no. I tell bacteria, you, The you're bacteria the toxo, from... Uh... Toxoplasmosis. I know, what you're, exactly.
0: I know where you're going with I, this.
2: You know, I would never <laughs> trade in my cats for fear of toxoplasmosis. Anyways, oh, continue.
0: So, but the fact that you have so many entrepreneurs now that are essentially saying, we're willing to give up half of our cap table without knowing whether or not they're going to have a successful exit just because of these principles around wanting to share ownership. That's what I think. Also, if you've not been an entrepreneur before putting yourself in that mindset to say, from day one, I'm getting rid of of half of half of my cap table is a really hard mindset to put yourself into. In terms of, you already have a very small chance of success, only about 10% of, I mean, it, it depends on whether you're a cooperative or a venture-backed startup, but most of these ventures fail. Most entrepreneurs do not make a lot of money while they're building. Even for, in Jod, you would have the numbers on series A-backed startups, but even there, you've got you know a lot of failure. So- Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
2: definitely. that's what, like, I, I, I don't fully know how I'm going to make my money back. Like, I'm not going to lie about that. As a co op, I knew from day one, it wasn't just giving away 50% or 55%. It was essentially the whole shebang. Yes, there's different allocations for how we distribute our profits, but ownership is weird and <laughs> how this works. And so, what is the upside? I don't know. I just want to make an impact, but and have like a paycheck, but there was never an exit desired exit it doesn't mean that we couldn't exit it's just that's not the end game to wealth creation in what we're building and that's not what everybody wants to do cool
1: yeah definitely and the numbers you like you said martin i have to look these up and put them in the show notes but off the top of my head it's probably something like uh when you're at the series A stage, you're seeing failure rates of like something like 50%, 40% of series A ventures, and it lead to something that VCs call failure, right? Which is that either zero or one to three X return, which is not what you're looking for at that stage, right? And so, and then when you forget about those guys, right, let's just focus on the humans, right? If you're the entrepreneur who's doing this, you run the numbers and it's something like a your median outcome of investing seven years of your life is something like $2.8 million, right? So then like, if you hold that up against, of course, again, giving this the the whole like, let's just make sure the backdrop this is happening on is like, that's a shit ton of money for seven years, if that's your median outcome. But at the same time, you also don't have to go kill yourself if you're in that privileged class of people who have the social support system to start a business, who have the network to actually raise money for it, to find people to hire for it, et cetera. You could have just gone to work at Facebook or something, right? Like there's other ways to make that same amount of money that don't cause you the immense amount of pain which is why i think it's interesting and we could probably spend another entire episode on what are the intrinsic motivators of entrepreneurship and what does that data look like that could be very interesting but i i definitely hear you on the front of like Maybe not on the toxoplasmosis pole of things, but maybe maybe on something more like, you know, that there's a serious problem that you just cannot ignore and it becomes the thing that you must do, right? It's not just, a, oh, well, let me just go start this business. It'll be great.
2: But that's what's interesting. And I, yes, not that you want to spend the entire time trying to figure out like what makes an entrepreneur want to do this. But when we're talking about co-ops and DAOs, we're also essentially asking our communities to be micro entrepreneurs. And that's what I think is the challenge as we enter into this newer phase is where people that are are the originators and starting the idea see that vision and are willing to put in their blood, sweat, and tears to make something happen. You can't expect that everybody is going to enter in with the same motivation and tenacity and also privilege. And I I can't emphasize that enough. And I think we're seeing that still in the the DAO space. I've asked many folks, like, how are you involving historically excluded communities that don't have the same privilege and wealth accessibility to just kick back and wait for tokens to have some sort of value? They need cash today to be able to do work. And it's something that we've wrestled with at Savvy is in the early days, like as a, a cooperative works, because you distribute profits. You have to be profitable to do that. And early days, our community, our members were like, where are my dividends? And that was you know, something that we had to explain is, oh, here's how co-ops work. And believe me, nobody wants to be profitable more than me because I haven't been paid ever. This is my own capital I've invested. We just aren't there yet. But we then started to have to incentivize our members to get more involved by just paying them cash. Until we became profitable, they had to have some way of knowing that we weren't a scam, right? Like, we're right. not just freeloading off of them, which again goes back to my earlier comment about why I've always had tension around just asking people to do it for free because that's such a position of privilege. And I, I'm curious how that's going to play out in this space where, you know, let's face it, there's a certain brand of folks that are in the DAO space and there's a lot of people who aren't.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think like, one of the main points, Mike Dudas is an investor at Sixman Ventures and is really big in the DAO space. I think just the other day uh, he said something effective. The biggest opportunity and problem in all of what we're doing still remains the fiat on-ramp and off-ramp into crypto. For this specific reason, right? Because if you just get into the mechanics of it, me being in one of these and then also you're contributing, being a core member of one now. When people who are contributing to your DAO are receiving you know, remuneration of some kind and it's crypto, well, now they have to deal with their jurisdiction and how they treat that, whether it's a capital asset or something else, and then their exposure on taxes to that capital asset. It's not as simple as just saying... Oh, yeah, we'll just pay them in the US dollar stable coin of our flavor or choice, right? So then that person has to come on board and say, Great, let me connect it to an exchange, let me change it into fiat money, let me put it in my bank account and accrue the fees along the way. Why would I do this? <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense, right? When you look at this stuff, so and it doesn't make any sense and simultaneously makes all the sense in the world when you look at who's participating, right? And so I know a person who doesn't have access to that. I was like, well, like, why would I pay a hundred bucks to get paid? That's weird.
2: <laughs> right, so. I know. I know. Well, that's what early days people are like, Savvy, you got to build all of this stuff on blockchain and crypto. And, you know, and I was like, our folks need, th- that doesn't work. We reach out to historically excluded communities and it's just, we're on a completely different wavelength there. It does not mean that there is complete discordance. It just, it might be that the type of, Folks that we enroll in sort of our gig economy might not want tokens. So it doesn't mean there's not a place for it in other parts of our business, but it's just, it's complicated and people are still figuring out the space. I mean, I used to joke early days, I was constantly asked to speak at like ICO conferences because just by nature of the fact that we were a co-op and I was like, woof, if I'm the one that's being asked to speak at these conferences as an expert, then this shows us that we have not figured stuff out yet because I should not be the one teaching folks about crypto just by the fact that we have a cooperative. I think there was a lot of, uh, well, that's a story for another day, but it's still a work in progress, this space.
1: Well, I would say you, very smart of you to not do that because if there were any ICOs involved, that is just such murky territory that you dodge a bullet as they say not participating very smart and i'm glad um, that
2: i did not give anyone advice on that either yeah
1: which is always good to remind everyone none of you've heard nothing you've heard on this podcast is financial advice always, <laughs> always good when it pops up financial <laughs> advice martin,
2: legal advice no Exactly are just musings of people that are trying to figure it out don't take our advice
1: exactly and martin remember to put that in the intro please thank you now that we've talked a little bit about Savvy, you know, we mentioned the stuff that's happening in Web3 and blockchain and the humans, the actual existing humans that are involved and are not involved in it. Why don't we turn a little bit to the humans involved with Savvy, right? Let's get into the the actual platform of Savvy, right? So can you tell us a little bit about your current business?
2: Oh, that. Sure. So so Savvy, as I had briefly mentioned, we act like a gig economy marketplace for Patients or caregivers, or any helpful citizen that wants to share their experiences with healthcare companies. That could be a pharmaceutical company, a digital health company, a hospital system, so that they can create better products or services. You know, I like to say, we help healthcare companies not make a bunch of crap by actually talking to the people they're trying to serve. And so that's functionally what we do as a business is play matchmaker when our clients have needs. They might be developing an app for people with diabetes and we say, "Okay, well, let's go talk to people with diabetes first and we match them up with people who meet very specific sort of criteria to be able to weigh in." So that's what you might be familiar with things like a uh, usertesting.com or a survey monkey or these types of market research firms, but we are very specific in sort of the healthcare space to make sure that they're talking to not just like gen pop folks, that they're talking to the actual people they're trying to innovate for. And that's why then you can think of it kind of like a Fiverr or an Upworks where we post these sort of job opportunities every Monday, our new gigs roll out and people can apply to participate in them. And they might make a hundred bucks for doing an hour long interview or $25 for completing a quick survey, or, you know, 200 bucks for user testing an app for a week, you name it. And we want to get folks paid. And so then they get paid for doing that activity. If they do an interview tomorrow, they'll get paid, you know, within 24 hours of doing that. As a cooperative, those who elect to join our co op as a co op member or co owner, they then are eligible to receive dividends based on how active they are within the co-op and how much they contribute. And that is above the remuneration that they would get for participating in one of our so-called gigs. So it's a little bit different. You do not have to be a co-op member to participate in the kind of projects that we have, but those that do have the ability to earn even extra for helping to build our co-op.
1: Nice. So then if I were to play back for folks listening, your main marketplace stakeholders then are your patients, obviously, and then patients and their caregivers, and then really anyone who might qualify for a study for the other side of the marketplace, which is, by the way, do you mind talking about anyone in particular? Can we name folks? Like
2: We can name folks. We'll see if they care later. But yeah, so we're a two-sided marketplace, one being patient-consumer type side, and then the other being the company-client side. And that can be folks like Bayer and AstraZeneca and, you know, Beringer-Ingelheim, these types of pharmaceutical companies. But it can also be startup, like tech companies, like Achille and Click Therapeutics, these... um, Tech platforms that help patients as well. It can be Amazon that has come to us for help with their Alexa devices to make them more accessible. So there's all sorts of folks that are coming to us to get very targeted expertise from our co-op members and patient base.
1: Cool. And the side, you mentioned this term a couple of times, right? Um, unless you're a co op person, I, I imagine most people don't quite know how it works, but we can talk about it maybe in a little bit of real terms. We can keep it theoretical. It all depends on where you guys are at as a business. But basically, you know, you in one calendar year, right? Let's say you guys, let's keep the number simple. If you guys do a million in revenue and you've got this two sided marketplace, going back to that original patient who was just like, hey, I don't want to just. Get paid and then go my way, right? I feel like you know I'm being used or what have you, right? You guys have this model that now gives people upside in it. What does that upside look like? What is the user ownership benefit side of this platform?
2: Yeah. So for those that are, you know, at least co-op curious and have some familiarity, you might know things like REI as a co-op, the sporting goods store. Is that how they talk about outdoor equipment or whatever they are? Yeah, um, sure. And I use that as the analog, although a very different type of cooperative, but you can think of co-op on a very large scale of membership that members get sort of nominal rewards. You know, if you shop at REI over the course of a year, you might then at the end of the year say, oh, here's $50 in dividends or whatnot that you get for being a member and shopping here at REI. So that's sort of the same order of magnitude about the dividends that our members receive is. They're not quitting their jobs. They're not becoming millionaires or thousandaires, as we joke at Savvy in our early days of becoming thousandaires at uh, for for the dividends that they receive. Now there are people that do receive in the you know single comma club of dividends, but that is not the that's not the majority of our members earning thousands at this stage in our company. But again, it's just a, a way to sort of reward people in the way that we track sort of participation in our co-op currently is around if people participate in these projects, but also if they refer people to participate in these projects. So there are some members of our co-op who have never themselves participated in a project because they didn't qualify, but they referred other people in the community who did participate and that's helpful for us as a business. So they also earn dividends. And so that's really kind of what our current cooperative looks like. And I think struggles for us going forward or, or just in the past and what perhaps other folks in the Web3 space and DAOs are also contemplating is how do you track contribution? That's something that's really tricky. And, you know, are you tracking people helping on an hourly way? Do they complete a project? Do they share on social media? I think that's a really exciting space for people who are building out technology to help those of us that that is our core ethos to be able to reward contribution. We just always haven't had a great way of tracking it. And so with better systems to do that, we'll be able to reward more opportunities here at our cooperative.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really exciting area. And there's a bunch of ventures that are emerging in that space and we can put some of them on the show notes. So I think that'll be a a fairly composable set of tools that um, will help Web2 founders um, or just founders in general figure out how to compensate. I think one of the points that you made is really interesting around, you know, you may only get a check for $50 from REI, but one of the things that's so important about tying governance into the ownership rights here is you talk about, Someone can get paid for a referral, right? And in a traditional platform based system, over time, the attributes around a particular individual are going to become known by the platform. And so, if you don't have broad based ownership rights, effectively all of that learning about that particular individual and the recommendation engine about what opportunities that they should be participating in will accrue to the owners of the platform. And in traditional platforms, you effectively have a very um, small group of of owners relative to the number of user participants. And so on one side here, you're empowering your users by, even if you build that platform and the platform you know, these kind of analog ways of making recommendations today, where you have knowledge that's trapped between individuals about who might be right for a particular, for lack of a better word, consulting opportunity, eventually, even if it goes into the platform, it's owned by the members and so the members benefit from that. The second element of this is that over time, the platform is going to accrue data rights, right? Or a lot of data on particular individuals. And in a traditional model, you might not, the platform might have the ability to just say, we're going to sell that data. We're going to sell all of your kind of aggregate data and the correlations to Pfizer, right? We're going to sell them to Bear. How are you treating data? Because has this not become an issue yet in terms of? I would imagine you have two types of data. You have individual data on particular individuals and who they are, their health issues, the the types of things they've participated in. But as your community grows, you're going to have a set of, of correlates or covariates with that information that's going to enable you to build predictive analytics on particular issues. And I'm just wondering, has that become an issue now? Do you have any policies around it? How have you thought about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, those are are great, great questions and astute ways of calling out kind of what we've always sort of looked at is what is sort of the next level of savvy. And yes, we accrue a lot of data on people. Right now, we are currently not monetizing it in any way, and we're still building out our infrastructure to be able to do anything you know, sophisticated with it. But that's where we always felt comfortable thinking about what is that next phase where we would be sort of those data brokers because we would share that wealth back with those folks who created it. And so that's where that's where things like blockchain will come into play potentially. Um, there are other ways that we could be doing this, but where we would be able to tie that information to an individual and remunerate them for how their data is being used. And also involving our members in helping us understand privacy policies? How do we want to think about sharing this information? Because it is their data. And it's something that even in the contracting phase, which is always fun with companies, and you can imagine the large companies with which we do contracts with, we put it in the contracts that that data is owned by our participants. And Savvy doesn't own it. They don't own it. The individual owns it and they have rights to use it sort of in aggregate, but we're making sure that we're carving out that there is future use, that patients would be able to have access to their data and monetize it accordingly. The other thing that you touched upon is around, yeah, that as people come into the platform, we kind of know about them and we lose some of that ability to... To track it and give wealth back to those folks. I'm saying in awkward terms here, but this is all to say that what we do at Savvy is, for lack of a better way of explaining it, we do view it somewhat like multi level marketing in the sense that we, if, you know, Martin, if we saw that you came in through Joe, whomever we would always know that you came in through them and they would be able to earn dividends on anything that you're participating in because we're essentially thanking them for introducing you to Savvy from the get-go. So it's not a one and done that we it was a one-time referral and that's all somebody gets because we know that there is value over time having you in our community because of the introduction from this Joe Make-Believe. So that's what we want to make sure that we're continuing rewarding our members and our community for the ways that they help us. And that can just be introducing somebody one time, but that is important to us in the future as well, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit different than just inviting somebody to Facebook and then cool. Now your friend is on Facebook. We think that's also cool that you're with Savvy, but we want to thank the people that introduced you forever.
0: Yeah, I think so. That's a common model in this space, and I think it's really smart. Effectively, you're saying that um, over time, the way these platforms work is the cost of acquisition goes down fairly dramatically, and as the cost of acquisition down, whether or not it's profit or economic rent, um, what you're making off of a user particularly in spaces where you have network effects that make it harder for someone to enter the space, it's probably more rent, right? I acquire a user and I can continually monetize them over time. And here you're saying, well, you know, we can't do much about network effects. We can't do much about kind of these platforms that have these dynamics that as they grow, uh, the cost of acquisition comes down and first movers often have a competitive advantage. But what we can do is we can share some of that rent right? We can essentially say, if you invite someone into the system, we're going to not just pay you 50 bucks, we're going to give you X percent of you know gross service value, which is what brain trust does, right? They give you the first 10,000 of anyone that you in, in token. Here, you're doing the same thing and saying out of the patronage of the co-op, which is the way that a co-op kind of generates member or out of kind of the revenues or patronage of the co-op, you're, you're essentially getting a percentage of that or a pro rata of that for someone that you invite into the ecosystem. So I think it's super smart.
2: You explained it so much better. Have you done this before?
0: This is what? the, the... <laughs>
2: I'm just saying that you've explained that before. My roundabout way. Clearly not in practice. So I think
0: yours was more intellectual and, and, uh, and smarter. Mine it's was just confident. like, you know, trying to tie together the cooperative world to uh, the Web3 world because I think people get lost in terminology like patronage and
2: yeah. tokens. You and Web3-splained all- me. Yeah. Well, awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nice. There's a lot of interesting things you touched on in that data spot, too, as well. I think, uh, you know, since you're a patient yourself, I would ask you, like, in terms of data, what would you care about? Right. Like, let's say say you did two or three savvy gigs. Right. And, you know, savvy goes years from now. Hey, we have this opportunity where, you know, we name some random top 20 biopharmaceutical company that wants to bring a digital health thing to market that needs a lot of data to train it. Right, and we have that data. What would you care about if that came around to you?
2: Oh, my gosh, I love this conversation. but what I also love is that you're you're asking me, and we always try to help people understand that patients are not monolith and therefore they need to have optionality and choices. And so that's what ideally someday we'll have better mechanisms so that if you say, "Hey, Jen, will you share your data with this pharma company?" I might be like, well, what are they going to use it for?" Mm-hmm. No no thanks. And they say, well, how about this pharma company or this academic health institution? I go, okay, yeah, share it with them. And so how do you have both the opt-in ability as opposed to just making it opt out? And that's what we're seeing a lot in the healthcare space is people who utilize a hospital, your data is going into all of those web two platforms and they are selling that. And right. patients are not comfortable with that. And it also, they're like, oh, well, then you don't have to use it. Well, screw you guys. Of course they do. This is their health they need to maintain. And it just, it sounds like a lot of privilege that someone in a rural spot that is a one community hospital, they don't have those choices. So I reject that. I feel very passionate about this. But then we see like larger consumer markets. One of my favorite examples to share about this is 23 Me. So 23andMe, which many people understand and know about is, you know, your ability to get your genome sequenced and maybe you find out some cool stuff, but that's a consumer play. You're actually paying them for access to your sequence and they get to do whatever the heck they want with it because you did opt into their terms of service. And when they did a a major deal with GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, a major pharmaceutical company where that data got sold. Yeah. Those consumers did not see anything for that. They didn't get any royalties for their data, but they're gone. Then they just sold it to a pharmaceutical company. So it just goes to show that, of course, we know that this data is valuable. But what does it look like? But like for patients to get some upside, it's their data. And I just shared an example of patients paying for access to their to data, right. like a, a genome sequence. But we know that patients struggle so much to even get access to their regular everyday healthcare data. They can't get it from their patient portals. So as a consumer, you don't have access, but somebody else is profiting off of it. So that's what you may be able to sense in my voice that I am very passionate about trying to make sure that there is more balance and equity into this data and how we can look at monetizing it. So that's where it's not that savvy doesn't see a future of this for what we're doing we absolutely do we don't know what that looks like yet and we'll work with our members to figure out what it is and build the infrastructures to do it but yeah everybody else is making money off of it so why shouldn't the users and patients themselves
0: yeah and I think it's one thing that is lost on a lot of people because people will have there's so much data fatigue right people are like oh I don't really care I'll just click the button right whatever but imagine you've got kind of a 11 year old kid and they you're participating in a study and that That, you know, 11-year-old kid has a congenital disease or chronic disease, right? And their data goes into a system. What what you're able to do with large data sets is you're actually able to predict behavior and outcomes, right? And the data, we're talking about kind of data that's encapsulated within a firm, that firm is then interacting with other firms. Maybe you have a legal agreement between those different firms, but where things get really tricky and why we really have to care about the governance of organizations like savvy, but also the relation between how that data is governed in kind of these business relationships that you're structuring is the regulatory environment of a country really matters in terms of how that data is used. It's, it's only very recently that you couldn't use pre-existing conditions to deny coverage, right? And even though we've solved that in the United States now, and that never really was an issue in the EU or kind of solved it in the United States if you're in a particular band, right? Right you still have a regulatory environment where you have law that can be turned over overnight, right? We just had this thing come out a a day ago on Roe v. Wade, where we thought we had established law, and now it's turned over overnight. And so the reason why people need to care about their data is, is it's not your data that matters. It's our common data that matters, and it's your data interacting with the data of millions of other people like you that can build probabilistic models that can shape, you know, whether or not you are able to participate in in benefits for the rest of your life. And that's why I think you know when we talk about governance, when we talk about ownership, some of this becomes really abstract, but when the rubber hits the road, we're talking about trying to put control back into into people's hands, given that we live in this tenuous environment where the rules can change overnight.
2: And I think then, I mean, something that I haven't talked about in quite some time, but what does it look like from the future of an organization like Savvy at a much larger scale, but That's the beauty of cooperatives is having collective bargaining power. So what does it look like someday where, you know, we have such a massive amount of participants and members that we're able to shape some other policies or create our own insurance opportunities or these kinds of things. And obviously, maybe not obviously, but this is far off from us, but that's what we have learned from co-ops is that that's why people band together to be able to do this.
1: And it's like a super interesting future too, because, like you said, this could end up becoming market making power in a lot of ways, right? Like, yeah, sure. If you, because it's funny, right? When you look at pharmaceutical companies, the pharma industrial complex, and, you know, the biopharmaceutical companies, digital health, that's a lot of dollars, a lot of lobbying power, a lot of relationships that patients don't have access to. But if you actually aggregate their power, it, you're bringing competition to that space in a lot of ways right you're actually saying like hey you know what uh these folks these rare patient diseases these folks you call rare patient diseases right i'm doing air quote fingers right is that uh hey we have 50 or 60 percent of them here and these are their actual needs right like maybe there's a future where those needs flow the other way around instead of being like in martin's parlance right if you have millions of people participating and you have all of that data in common, but it's enclosed by legal agreements between firms who can then do whatever they want to it, then they can decide what a market can be shaped on. Right. So um, that's
2: one of my favorite things to raise on all these speaking panels that I do with a bunch of pharma folks or whomever is make them feel super awkward as I bring in that, um, unpopular opinion that I believe that patients who participate in clinical trials should have equity into the company or in the drug that they help bring to market because we know this is wildly valuable and we're literally testing on their bodies. And so what does it look like to give them some sort of financial upside beyond that. And then I get people going like, oh my gosh, this is so awkward, Jen. But I think that that's where we're going, right? Like, hey, you want us in your trial? Cool, cool, cool. Like show me why and how I am going to have lasting benefit. And I think that the thing that we run into in the space that we're in is that a lot of people just want to help and contribute and altruism is great. That's why I do what I do, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And so we always say, I don't care what that patient does with that compensation, but they earned it and they can turn around and donate it to a charity of their choice. That's a mechanism that we have here at Savvy, but they earned it and it has value. And we can't just rely on sort of the goodness of people's hearts contributing to these different opportunities because somebody's making money off of it. And so why shouldn't it also be those patients?
1: Absolutely. And you bring up a super interesting uh, perspective there with this, you know, hey, why don't we give people upside in the drugs that they're bringing to market blockbuster drugs that are worth billions of dollars per decades, right? Billions of dollars per annum per decades, right? So like, that's like a 40 billion, $50 billion opportunity. And it's super interesting now, because at least going back a little bit to the earlier part of the discussion around Web3, and maybe this is where you wrap it up. Is there's this decentralized science movement that's kind of coming to the fore now. Uh, it's got, you know, it's tiny, but there's some solid progress happening there. And for me, I'm not an NFT person. And so, like, I don't really care about eight pictures and, you know, moon cats and all the other stuff, but things that are non fungible and can be represented as such, say, Intellectual property in a vaccine that results from a set of studies where we know exactly whose data contributed to it and whose rights that they can then transfer to and who took the risks to do it becomes very interesting. And so I'm kind of just talking about one that already exists. It's called uh, uh Vitadow, and it came out of the folks who run the molecule platform. And so one of the things that you know you kind of bring into being here is there could very much be a future of a patient community that say maybe. You pools all of their dividends from savvy in one year and says, Hey, we want to finance a $50,000 experiment at this one company, this one academic research lab so that they can run a candidate drug for us in a rat study and see what we can actually get out of it. And downstream that will become more valuable because if there's a candidate drug, we can have find other people to sponsor it in humans and it goes to market. And when it goes to market, the IP transfers to this group of people, all right? Yep. And then there you go. That's actually that's already happened once through this group, but they're looking at longevity drugs. But I think there's no reason why there couldn't be a hundred other DAOs looking at every type of disease there is and and then accumulating patient power on patients by on patients' terms in these communities. Right. So that's like that's one potential really rosy future, right? There's a lot of other things to solve along the way, regulatory, legal, and social, but
2: yeah. And that's what I always point to these kind of things, that there are folks that will help figure that stuff out. You bring in smart professionals to help you, but there are true challenges in getting some of this done now. And so we need people with enough endurance to continue on. And so I hope that folks that listen to this podcast and are in this space are excited to you know kind of help move this forward, but please help create space for people who do not have access to working in this kind of arena and and doing this stuff for free because we talk about the data sets, right? Data is learning off of data sets that have bias baked into them because there are people that are excluded. And that is going to continue to happen if we don't make sure that we have enough representation in these movements as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to wrap it up. So we like to reserve the last few minutes for people to just to let everyone know where to find you on the internet. You know, for my web three I usually turn it over to them and say, this is your opportunity to shill. But you know, you don't have to. Of course, we know that you're in a sensitive industry, so we don't want to just use the word shill. Please tell everyone where they can follow you. Promote anything that's savvy that might be of interest to folks that's in in the audience who might have just heard of savvy, et cetera.
2: Well, please come and join our network. You can visit us at savvy.coop. And I have learned that I need to spell out that entire thing because I learned that people do not know how to spell savvy. It is with two V's folks, not two A's, S-A-V-V-Y dot C-O-O-P. And you can find us there and you'll see that there's an opportunity to either request patient insights or... Share them. And so, even if you maybe don't identify as a patient yourself, that is where you will be able to join as a sort of patient on our sort of two sided marketplace. And you will get our new opportunities every Monday. They will go out in a newsletter penned personally by my co founder, Ronnie, who has a fabulous sense of humor and some good dad jokes. So, please enjoy those subject lines every Monday. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, savvy underscore co-op. Again, savvy spelled correctly and co-op spelled correctly both times. And I'm Jen Horn Jeff. You don't need to follow me. You're not going to know how to spell my last name, anyways. So I don't know. That's what I got.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh thanks for giving us your time today. Uh I definitely learned something about the passive savvy that I didn't know about. And, you know, and also learning a bit more about behind the scenes of co-ops and what's going on there now super exciting so thanks for sharing with us and uh yeah
2: thanks for having me